This is the Edisto TV podcast, connecting the Blackwater region. Welcome to another edition of the Edisto TV podcast. I'm Hugo. And I'm Tom. And we are here once again to talk about all things river and the Edisto watershed, the Blackwater region. Um, This week, we had an excellent interview with Ann Timberlake of the Conservation Voters of South Carolina. Tom, we got to know Ann, I guess, back in the beginning of the 2014 legislative session when we began to get involved in some of the political aspects of this water issue. Uh, Ann's group does the annual Conservation Common Agenda along with, I think, in the neighborhood of 40 conservation groups from around the state. And they had, uh, under the aegis of the conservation voters, uh, informational sessions for both the Senate and the House of Representatives in the state legislature. And they were kind enough to invite us to be there for that and sort of lend our voices in support of the water portion of that agenda. Um, And uh, so we're going to talk to Ann we we had a fairly lengthy interview with her. Do you want to jump in on any of? Yeah, just also they they do the scorecard. They're they're the ones that um are doing a lot to try to influence the uh, legislature and uh, the way that people vote on some of these issues. Yeah, they they also do the scorecard thing where they keep track of the conservation voting record of politicians in the state, and as you said, they are in the business of endorsing candidates who they think best serve the conservation agenda uh, on the state and, I think, national political scene. So uh, Anne will talk more about that and how they came to be in that position as we get into that interview with her. Um, We talked for about an hour, so I think there's a good chance that we'll have about a half hour of Anne today in this edition of the podcast, and then we'll finish up with her in next week's edition, episode 17 of the podcast. Man, we're almost to 20. Getting there. Okay. Um, did want to mention last week we talked a good bit with Doug Busby about the safe yield information in the notification by DHEC of a new ag registration on Goodland Creek uh, down near Springfield. And after we talked to Doug uh, for that last episode of the podcast, we received some new information from DHEC on September 2nd. Uh, we recorded on September 1st. Um, and they let us know that Quote, we noticed that there was a typographical error on the informational notice we sent you on 828.14. The safe yield is not 818 million gallons per month, as indicated in the notice. The unadjusted safe yield on Goodland Creek there was 609 million gallons a month, so a bit over 200 million gallons a month less than what was originally in the notification that they sent us. And then they say that the uh, safe yield adjusted for two existing withdrawals in Goodland Creek is 485 million gallons a month. And with the requested withdrawal recently approved of an additional 15 million gallons a month, the remaining safe yield in Goodland Creek, according to DHEC, 470 million gallons a month. Right. So the point, the point's still a good one, though. The point we were making, and, and uh, if you go to www.edisto.tv slash safe-yield, you can see all the, the data here as well as some pictures of this creek. But the point is still a good point, which is the, the Walther Potato Farm is currently registered for 400 million gallons a month. They could operate off of this creek, supposedly. 
according to the safe fuel calculation. Uh, according to these numbers, which if you see a, a creek that's six inches, you know, deep and six feet wide, it's just hard to fathom taking uh, 400 something million gallons a month out of there. So we think it's good evidence that this calculation's wrong. And we're going to try to keep gathering information and make the case that this number has got to be calculated in a different way. All right. And um, I will mention that that notice of the um, updated safe yield information on Goodland Creek came to us from Charles M. Gorman, the Director of Water Monitoring Assessment and Protection Division, Bureau of Water, South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control. And one of the things that is on our list of things to do here at the Edisto TV podcast is to hopefully get someone or several someones from DHEC on the program with us because they're state agency. There's a little bit of protocol apparently involved in getting that done, but we have been, as they say on CNN all the time, efforting towards getting somebody <laughs> on to talk to us. Well, I, I, th I think, I hope DHEC would be willing to talk to us about this. And even if it's just a technical discussion, like I'd like to see how the numbers actually work you know um yes i i do think that that is a possibility they they have you know people who are in charge of talking to the media which i guess we are in some tortured sense of the word um so hopefully we'll be able to make contact with them and work out a way that we can have somebody from dhec come on and talk to us uh in the interest of getting good information out to the people of south carolina uh, moving along, uh, been a fairly busy week online on Edisto Concerns and the Edisto TV webpage. Um, what's up this week? Well, first of all, you just mentioned Edisto TV has added the Safe Yield page. Uh, right now we have the information from Goodland Creek registration up as an example of how some of the Safe Yield numbers work. And we have been talking backstage about the possibility of getting some of the other registration information added to that page so that we can give more and fuller examples of what's up with the safe yield calculation. Um, in terms of water shortages, all sorts of news out there. This is a very trendy issue. There was a blog post from American Rivers on low water levels in the Ace Basin. That was by Steve Gilbert of the South Carolina Wildlife Federation. He was formerly, I believe, with the DNR here in South Carolina. Um, and I thought what Steve wrote w was very thoughtful and, and useful in terms of framing the issue here on surface water withdrawals. Any thoughts on what he had to say there? Yeah, Tom? well, he was just, he was focusing on the same thing we did a few weeks back, which was the, the Salkahatchee and fish kill. And the fact that that, that is one third of what feeds the Ace Basin. And of course the Edisto is another third. We are the E and Ace. <clears throat> right. So we see, uh, you know, this, the Ace Basin is something we probably need to talk about more because it, it is such a treasure, uh, recognized around the world as a treasure, and yet two-thirds of that uh, rivers feeding it, you know, are having some concern, you know, some issues. Absolutely. Um, and low water seems to be something of a theme for the week. We have a link on the Edisto Concerns page to an online story on water shortages in Indiana. That's one you posted, Tom. What caught your eye there? Well, a couple things. One is uh, the quote in there that says, local water supplies are insufficient for meeting future public needs. Um, they also noted that uh, agricultural use and irrigation is, is on the increase, and so that's a continued concern. And, you know, it's a, it's a limited resource, and we're seeing uh, the, the demand go up and uh, not down. And um, 
So I just uh, I think it's happening everywhere. Uh, these big agricultural states in the Midwest are starting to see it, and so we just have to be able to address it here. Yeah, and I, I will point out that we don't really uh, exercise a great bit of a great deal of science in how we find these things to link. I'm sure there are plenty more stories about water shortage out there that we have not linked to the uh, the Edisto Concerns page. And actually, users out there who are visiting that page, if you find stuff that is along these lines, please post it to the page um, or let us know, and we will, because we are we are always looking to find more information. On that note, CNN posted a very interesting article about uh, they sent one of their people to paddle down the San Joaquin River out in California. Uh, the San Joaquin is number one on the endangered river list for this year from the folks at American Rivers. And, Tom, I know that that, uh, that story of, of his attempt to paddle from source to sea on the San Joaquin really struck some chords with you. Yeah, it did, because... You you start out with him in the Sierra Nevada mountains in these you know these just beautiful you know powerful rivers flowing through the mountains and you got waterfalls and white water and so forth and then it comes down and you have this rich farmland you know it's just this beautiful place and it keeps going and it keeps going and 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 it finally gets to a point where the guy the farmer who has the water rights at that certain point literally takes every drop of water from the river and uses it to irrigate his fields, and it's a barren wasteland for about 40 miles. It's just grass and dirt and sand, and, you know, and and then, then the farmer, his drainage comes back in 40 miles down, or some other farmers, and then, you know, it's kind of all polluted. It has runoff and so forth, and then, of course, other rivers come back in. It goes back to normal, but, I mean... We, we we talk about this like it's some apocalypse and people might think, oh, you're just, that could never happen. But it happens. It's happening in California. It's happened in other places. I want to make sure it doesn't happen here. And right now the law will permit it to happen. Well, th- there are some differences, and, and we invite people who are interested to go to the Edisto Concerns page. There is a link to this article there. Um, I think it will also be in the show notes on the Edisto TV site. Um, one of the things that is different out in California is that the San Joaquin sources up in the mountains. It comes to a reservoir, and if I'm remembering the way it works correctly, downstream of that first reservoir, they actually channelize some of it off to, I think, the Central Valley. I mean, the, the yeah, river Modesto gets, gets or split up and, yeah, and yeah. sent in three different directions at one point, right. and the original course of it, is where Tom was talking about it, it, it running out of water altogether for stretches. So anyway, it, it, it's an interesting article about another river, but it really does raise some genuine concerns about whether similar things could happen to our rivers here in South Carolina. One of the things that we talked about at a fair amount of length uh, in the interview with Ann Timberlake was this story of the San Joaquin and whether or not there are some warnings in what's happening there for us here in South Carolina and what could happen to our rivers. And um, so that's part of the conversation. And if y'all are interested in reading the article itself, we certainly recommend it. As a paddler, I found it a little bit distressing that the guy who wrote it was such a non-paddler. But Yeah, yeah but the, to me, though, the, the big takeaway is 
we have a culture here that has a certain level of respect maybe for rivers and the natural resources or something like that. And so you can't imagine someone who thinks it's okay to take every last drop out of the river. But we have proof that there are people who believe that that's okay. And in fact, good for farmers, good for people who eat food, good for, you know, a lot of things. And it's just the price you pay for progress. And so we, I, I want to make sure everybody knows that there are people that believe that and they are, you know, they would love to take our water. Yeah, we have said from the outset that we felt like we were extremely lucky that the folks at Walther Farms, once we made our concerns known, were willing to come to the table and talk about it. But we said right along that just because they were nice doesn't mean the next folks coming down the road with an equally large registration or larger wouldn't, you know, just tell us to go stick it in our hats. So, you know, we'll 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 keep an eye on this. And, and as I say, uh, we had a good conversation with Ann about that, amongst other things. Uh, two other things online this week. Like I said, we got a lot of them. One was I posted a uh, video clip of a black rat snake that I found around the house the other day. And uh, thanks to the miracle that is the Internet, for some reason 900 people have looked at my clip of my snake. So thanks. That was a good-looking snake. It was it, like, what was it, maybe eight feet long? I mean, nah, it was a, just it, a little five-foot black rat snake, it, it was, but it very looked, mellow. It looked big to me. It was a pretty nice snake, and you had some great, great shots of it. All right, and one other news note there. September 3rd was the 50th anniversary of the Wilderness Act. And uh, for those of you who maybe weren't around 50 years ago or don't remember what that was all about, we talked with Ann Timberlake a little about that because uh, that was a really vital, groundbreaking piece of legislation back in 1964 when it was enacted. Also, want to make sure we mention the uh, Conservation Voters Green Tie Luncheon that's coming up on September 17th. 17th, yes. Okay, and I believe we uh, gave Anne an opportunity to promote that uh, during the interview, so we'll probably hear about that towards the end of this week's episode of the Edisto TV podcast. We're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll jump right into our interview with Anne Timberlake of the Conservation Voters of South Carolina. Hey, this is Tom from the podcast. It's football season, and Tyler Brothers has Carhartt Collegiate Gear for Carolina Clemson and Georgia Bulldog fans. We also have beautiful game day brand boots at $100 off their list price. Visit the store in Wagner or check them out online at tylerbrothers.net. Tyler Brothers, the place to go when you want to stay away from those superstars. For more information and archived podcasts, visit us at edisto.tv. And Tom, as I said, we've got a lot of Ann Timberlake to uh, to, to to get on. Um, we've already talked for about ten minutes. We try to keep the podcast to around half an hour, so we're going to get some of Ann's content in today. Uh, then next week we will have more Ann Timberlake on episode seventeen of the Edisto TV podcast, and also looking ahead a little bit. We have Garrett Jobsis of American Rivers, based out of Columbia, South Carolina, who is going to be talking to us the following week. So the agenda is starting to fill up. People are beginning to listen to the podcast and enjoy it, hopefully. And with that, let's jump into our interview with Ann Timberlake. I guess it would be good to start with uh, maybe just telling us a little bit about who you are, uh, what your organization does, and, and maybe a little bit of your background, how you ended up in this position. I'm Ann Timberlake. I'm executive director of Conservation Voters of South Carolina. 
and this is an organization that's a little over 10 years old, and I was recruited to uh, be the first executive director. Conservation Voters was actually formed to um, complement the good work that organizations were already doing in South Carolina to, you know, protect um, natural resources. But many of those organizations were uh, tax-deductible nonprofits and therefore were not able to make endorsements of political candidates. They were not as uh, as free to um, advocate or do scorecards and report on um, the how legislators vote. So conservation voters kind of filled that void in our community. And then in addition, we bring together organizations around the state, really over 400, organ I mean, I wish it were 400, excuse me, 40 organizations around the state um, in support of priorities uh, for each legislative session, so conservation priorities. We're, we like to say that we're making old-fashioned conservation values in South Carolina a priority for legislators. Um, so that's a little bit about conservation voters, but my background um, and how I got here um, is, uh, I guess, not was not a straight pathway, but I grew up in Columbia. I went um, out of state to Tulane University. Uh, I like to say I came back um, as a radical, but I, I, I hate to say I was not a, you know, I, I hadn't joined the civil rights movement. I had, I had, um, I, it was it was that era because I graduated from college in 1968. But I came back as a tree hugger. Uh, so there was also about the same time, uh, 1970 was the first Earth Day. So uh, by that time, I had discovered the Sierra Club. Uh, there was very, there was only I mean, probably less than 100, probably less than 50 members of the Sierra Club in South Carolina at that time. And so this was sort of the beginning of conservation, uh, sort of more, I would say, activist conservation in South Carolina at that time. You know, we had groups that did exist. There were groups like South Carolina Wildlife Federation, and there was a small uh, group of Audubon Society active then. Um, I think Nature Conservancy maybe opened their office at about that time. But as far as sort of grassroots um, activism, Sierra Club was really a good training ground in those early fights that I worked in were things like protecting the Congaree Swamp, establishing the Congaree National Park. Otherwise, it was going to be cut. Uh, it was privately owned, and the landowner had taken good care of it for almost 100 years. It had it on a very long rotation. It really, was, really only cut a little bit of cypress when they first bought the property. So essentially, it was, it was never cut. But um, they'd reached the point where they were going to begin cutting it. So by getting it established as a National Park, which took an act of Congress and took about a four-year grassroots campaign. You know that was that was an exciting early campaign to work on. We worked on things like um, the Chattooga River being designated as a wild and scenic river. Um, you know, worked on a lot of um, a lot of different um, issues in both North and South Carolina. Um, I was reminded, actually, yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Wilderness Act, 
That was signed September 3, 1964 by Lyndon Johnson, and a lot of our early work um, in North and South Carolina was to, uh, was to advocate for eastern wilderness areas on national forest land. There were really very few areas. There were a lot of, uh, when the Act passed in 1964, there were automatically a lot of areas in the west that were protected, but very few in the east. And so um, one of the early areas, there was actually a combined effort to pass an eastern wilderness bill in 19, I think it was in 74, 76, I'm not sure, 74 or 76. And in that year is when we added um, the George Kilmer Slick Rock Wilderness in western North Carolina. We added Ellicott Rock, which is the headwaters of the Chattooga. Um, and but protects more the watershed. So that was very exciting. But, you know, the other, um, I was reminded yesterday that the other act that was signed at that same time by Johnson was the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And that's been a federal fund that has protect, protected billions of acres across the country, not only for parks, but a lot of open space um, you know, if we were ever to be able to uh, do more land protection in the upper Edisto, perhaps that would be a fund that could be utilized. And it's interesting, it's that fund is supported by revenues from offshore oil and gas drilling. Um, it's my understanding that it's generally, although there would be, a lot of times Congress doesn't put all of what could be authorized into that fund, but it has been an ongoing fund uh, for 50 years. And it's, um, it, it's, it, it actually is uncertain whether it will be reauthorized. There will be important votes next week in Congress um, to reauthorize and extend the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So, uh, but to kind of go back to my beginning, uh, I know I've probably strayed. I came back to South Carolina. I was, as I said, of tree hugger at that point, joined the Sierra Club, um, ended up um, marrying and moving to the upstate, and my husband, Ted Snyder, was the first chairman of the Sierra Club in North and South Carolina. So we, we sort of, I did full-time Sierra Club work for about nine years. Um, I moved back to Columbia. I was divorced, moved back to Columbia. Uh, by that time, I had gotten interested in political work, and I had been a, a volunteer and county coordinator for Dick Riley when he ran for governor in 1978. And that interest kind of, you know, led me more to working as a volunteer on, on um, you know, really local, state, and a few national campaigns. And I also, um, you know, had a, had a family, remarried, uh, my sister and I, a lot of people don't know this, but my sister and I at one point owned a neighborhood grocery store in Columbia. It was called the Purple Cow. I think we were a little bit ahead of our time, but we did. I had a full-service um, small grocery um, and did that about five years, and we sold that. And did a couple other things, uh, but was really excited at the chance to, you know, to go to work for conservation voters, mainly because it kind of combined my interest in protecting, you know, the South Carolina that we love, as well as uh, engaging in, with political leaders. And I do think we've come a long way to, uh, in a bipartisan way, to educate our elected leaders about 
how natural resources really drive a third of South Carolina's economy and that we need to value them. I mean, the Edisto is a prime example um, that, you know, we're so proud nationally of the Ace Basin, but the Ace Basin is dependent on the, you know, water coming down the Edisto River. And, you know, there's more and more um, recreation being directed uh, to our rivers and our unique places. So we were we were really happy to be able to join with local people when there was concern about, you know, the future of the Edisto. And it's still on our radar. When we first started getting involved in the Edisto issue uh, with the Walther Farms uh, registration for surface water withdrawal, it came as something of a surprise to us when the Farm Bureau organization came out so strongly uh, and stridently talking about radical environmental extremists. And at the time, Tom and I were asking publicly who the radical environmental extremists were. Have we found you? As I said, I guess I was. I was. I was a. I'm definitely. I was a radical extremist. In, I guess in uh, 1970 or 19. When we working on Congress, I can remember my father actually being a bit shocked because you know when we were working on Congaree, it was a privately owned forest, about 20,000 acres. Um, that land had been bought uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, by a Chicago family, and they were reinvesting. They had had money from, you know, timber in the north uh, woods, and they were buying southern timberland, especially cypress land. And they really didn't want to sell it. We did ask, would they, you know, would they work with us? We would go and you know, wage a public campaign to buy it from them at a fair price. And they were very skeptical about whether they would be given a fair price, and they didn't want to sell it. And so we started a campaign anyway because, you know, it, it was, a, we thought, a public treasure. And my father was a bit horrified at that. And he kind of looked at me and said, but, you know, that's private land. And he, you know, in his generation were were a bit put off by that. But I think it, you know, even the... Um, Timber folks today recognize that protecting that that unique forest was a good thing. But, you know, when this broke about um, conservation voters and me personally, because there were, there were some ugly social media uh, postings about my Ann Timberlake being a radical environmentalist, I was a bit surprised. I don't think that folks up at the State House think of of conservation voters or uh, myself being radical, I think they consider us to be a really, you know, valuable part of a um, stakeholder process. You know, we've been, I think we've earned a right to sit at the table. It doesn't mean that we, we generally aren't able to pass bills without compromise. And in fact, you know, that takes us back to the Surface Water Act, which was a compromise. I can remember that meeting in December, no, it was January, first week of January when we gathered, um, DHEC hosted the meeting and there were over 400 people who attended. And uh, I think I actually stood up, there were a lot of our, I mean, folks were understandably angry and they were angry and really 
kind of baffled, I think, that legislators would have passed an act that gave such a, um, you know, free ride in a way to an agricultural registration. And I did stand and say, well, it was a compromise. I think we realized that we probably made some mistakes. But in defense of the senators and representatives, it was represented to them that this was the best we could do. We worked for four years to pass legislation. And at that time, there was so much concern that um, there would be industrial and water utility uh, withdrawals. I mean, you may remember uh, Georgia and Atlanta were going through a, a sort of a water war. They were There were threats about, you know, Atlanta could just put a, you know, a straw into the savanna and, and pipe it over for their use. So there was this idea that, I mean, and agriculture was sort of not as high on the radar. And we never seen this kind of, you know, high volume uh, withdrawal proposed. But I did think in deference to the um, legislators who voted for the Surface Water Act, we needed to stand up and say that, you know, that they were, it was the first step. We We'll have to go back and fix it. I'm convinced, um, but it, you know, that's kind of, I mean, making laws is not always, um, you know, a pretty picture. I mean, it's, it is a process sometimes, and uh, uh, sometimes we have to go back and defend against good bills being weakened, and sometimes we have to take weak acts and make them better. So that's just well, kind of part of the process. And uh, I guess. Back to the radical environmentalist um, yeah. uh, idea, I you know what I've seen uh, and heard from you has does n not really seem very radical to me. Uh, um, it seems like you always seem to consider like you're not saying we should you know claim all private land and protect it or we should you know keep businesses out of our water. I mean everything I've seen and heard from you seems to be about a balanced usage of our natural resources. I mean, I, I, how do you stand? Do you feel like that you're, you propose uh, a balance? Oh, absolutely. And the conservation community in South Carolina, I think, has always been very uh, mainstream. You know, we have, as I mentioned, we've been bipartisan. We work with Republicans and Democrats. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of environmental issues in Washington, D.C., have gotten very polarized and sort of branded with one party or the other. And that is not true in South Carolina. And I think it is goes back to sort of this being balanced. Um, we like to think that we can protect our natural resources and promote prosperity. A lot of times it's kind of, when we have differences, it's because we're not looking at the long view. And sometimes there appears to be, you know, an immediate gain to be made, um, but when you look at the long view, you know, as conservationists, we come in and, you know, ask sometimes some tough questions about, you know, I mean, stewardship. Stewardship is a very, um, I would say, conservative notion. It's grounded in a lot of our religious beliefs, being responsible and good stewards and passing on to future generations. And so when we think that way, I think we are more likely to be in agreement it's more, you know, it's more when there's like an immediate, um, you know, promise of jobs. I mean, yeah, we, we've got to find a balance.
Um, I know you've got Sean Drury on staff and that he's out around the state doing stuff all over the place. I saw he was in Anderson the other day. Um, what are those sessions? Well, that has been related to the release of our scorecard. So, yeah, I do want to, I do want to direct people to go online to um, www.cvsc, it's CV as in voters, sc.org. And they can view our new scorecard. It's very um, user-friendly. They'll be able to do searches and look at who voted for which bill, who voted against which bill. They can see the scores of um, of their House and Senate members. And we've been on what we call a Conservation Counts tour around the state. In fact, they, uh, Sean was actually in Greenwood this morning, and he was in Anderson at lunch. We were um, we were commending. Um, Senator Nicholson from Greenwood and Billy O'Dell from uh, that area as well. Uh, Senator uh, O'Dell, they both had very high scores, and also Representative Ann Parks up there. And uh, in, I don't have the scores in front of me of the Aiken delegation. I would say there are. I believe that Representative Bill Clyburn has a, a very good score. Um, in fact, hold on, I think I have it right here, and I can give that to you. Um, he has been always a good supporter of conservation. And his score was, he's got a lifetime average of over 80%. Um, there are Gilda Cobb Hunter, who is from Orangeburg, but that is in the Edisto Basin. Gilda had 100% uh, this last session. So, you know, folks can go on and there, there is not, there, you know, there was no, we had some bills that were introduced to address the Surface Water Act, but none of them got out of committee. So we do not have any votes um, on the scorecard that specifically relate to water flow. But um, they will find, you'll find um, there was a real key vote on what we call the polluter amnesty bill and that was a bill that would have weakened the Pollution Control Act. It relates to our rivers because one of the biggest threats to some of um, a number of our rivers uh, would be uh, pollution from coal ash ponds that are adjacent to some of the power plants. Um, and there have been some successful attempts because of the threat of possible litigation under the Pollution Control Act there have been some successful negotiations with the utilities to voluntarily remove and pull back some of these coal ash ponds. So we did not want um, that that act to be weakened, and it was stopped. There, but there were some key votes on that on that uh, in the House. So yeah, I mean it's always um, we do we do we think that you know citizens need to know how their representatives are voting. And so uh, we do encourage folks to go look at that. We have, uh, we're actually presenting Gilda Cobb Hunter with a Green Tie Award. And that luncheon, if folks want to, um, on our website too, you will see information about the Green Tie Luncheon. Um, and that is September 17th here in Columbia. And we, you know, you can buy a ticket online. Uh, we also have online the listing of the candidates we're endorsing. Um, because that is, uh, we have a political action committee, and we do endorse candidates. And you can, 
uh, there's a great uh, page on the website where you, you it's called Give Green, and you can make your contribution to a candidate. It, you can make one to our pack. Um, that we love that, but you can make a a direct contribution to the candidate. And when it comes to them, they they know it was made because the donor wanted um, wanted their contribution to be green. That's about all the time we have for this week's episode of the podcast. We still have more with Ann Timberlake, so we'll jump into that next week when we get to episode 17. But I think we're now wrapping up episode 16 of the podcast. Tom, any thoughts on what we heard from Ann so far? I'm just so thankful that she was willing to come and talk to us. Um, As I said a few weeks back and some of the others that we've interviewed, um, I have a lot of admiration for people that you know, pretty much devoted their life to these causes that I've, you know, frankly paid very little attention to. And so, um, you know, I I think her story is a good one and, and I appreciate her being part of this podcast. Yeah. I particularly was interested in some of the stuff she had to say about early on when they were working towards getting the um, national park designation for Congaree and uh, how the wilderness act, kind of fueled that and, and, and led in a fairly straight line to the creation of the new national park over there in Columbia. Yeah, and also just the, the, the mindset, you know, her dad as an example of, you know, somebody who, you know, says, hey, it's private land. If he wants to cut down all those trees, let him cut down all those trees, And, and uh, which, you know, most of us believe in, in uh, property rights. But the fact that people say, well, you know, maybe there's a higher calling for these trees. Maybe we could protect them. <laughs> you know, and uh, so I, I, I like it. It's, it's, we've come a long way in the last four years, for sure. Okay, and with that, we're going to wrap up Episode 16 of the Edisto TV Podcast. would like to invite you to join us again next week as we wrap up the interview with Ann Timberlake and talk some more about the water issues facing the Edisto uh, surface waters in South Carolina, the waters of the United States, the waters of the world, and any water we can find off planet. We'll see you then. This is the Edisto TV podcast, produced by Edisto TV, connecting the Blackwater region.